When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. Um, I'm going to pray for us now. Um, so if you are someone who prays, please do pray with me and then Roland's going to speak to us. Dear Lord, as we hear your word taught to us now, I pray that you help us to put aside the other things that might be um, filling up our minds and just to concentrate and, um, yeah, just really please do um, give us soft hearts to hear your message um, and what you want us to teach us today. Um, and I pray for Rowan. I pray that you'll be speaking through him now. Amen. Thanks very much, Christy. I don't know if you realised as we read through that little story, it's quite a strange story. If you've got a Bible there, it'd be really helpful to open it up to Acts chapter 2 or maybe look on with the person next to you uh, or maybe call it up on your phone. And it's one of those things, sometimes you hear the story read and you think, oh yeah, 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 but sometimes you've got to actually insert yourself in your imagination into the story to just get how fully weird that event would have been. So you can see there in Acts chapter 2, Luke writes for us, he says, when the day of Pentecost came, okay, just a little footnote there, Pente, five, Pentecost was a Jewish festival, it was 50 days after the previous Jewish festival, which was the festival of Passover. So Pentecost, 50 days after the festival of Passover, that's significant because that was when Jesus died. Jesus died around Passover time and so Luke's telling us it was 50 days later. We know from Acts chapter 1 for the, about a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared after having been killed, walked out of the grave, fully alive after three days, and he appeared over a period of 40 days to the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. We looked at that last week. Then Jesus got taken up into heaven, Acts chapter 1 says. He disappeared from sight. And now we read it's Pentecost. That's so probably about a, a week, 10 days later, right, after that happened. We read there. They were all together. We know about 120 of them from chapter 1. They were all together in one place. So I guess they're in a room. I don't know if it was a room. Wouldn't, probably not a lecture room like this with comfy seats. But they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Right? Imagine that. 
not an actual wind blowing through the room, the sound, like that of a wind, coming from heaven. That would sort of freak you out a little bit. You go, whoa, what's going on there? Okay. Then, verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Now, tongue is not like a tongue, right? That would be weird, a tongue of fire. But a tongue means like a flame of fire. They saw a flame of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, right? You can imagine flames appear in the middle of the room. Suddenly it separates and it's come towards each one of us. And you're probably not going, oh yeah, cool, come to me. You're probably going, no, no, what's that, what's that, what's that? Flames, and, they, and you can't evade the flame, it lands on you. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Or the footnote there says languages, other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So suddenly you start speaking Hungarian. Never heard a word of Hungarian before. You may not even know what language that is, but you, you start speaking Hungarian. The person next to you is speaking Lapish, which is what they presumably speak in Lapland. Everyone is suddenly speaking in different languages. What are they saying? Well, that fire was really weird, don't you think? That wind? No, what are they saying? Look down a bit lower to verse 11. Halfway down verse 11, the crowd that assembles... They say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So what were they saying? They were just saying, oh, God is awesome, God's really good, isn't God big, you know, ever thought about how old God is? Were they declaring? No, what were the wonders of God that they were declaring? Well, what had all been happening in chapter 1? Jesus had been raised from the dead as part of the great plans of God, the kingdom of God, and he said he would pour out his spirit. That's what's just happened. And so presumably what they are declaring in all these different languages is how awesome is God in what he has done in this person, Jesus. And they start all saying it in these different languages. I mean, it's a pretty weird experience, right? That would be weird. And it wasn't a silent event. It wasn't quiet. Not only was there the wind, but suddenly all 120 which is probably about as many people who are here, all start speaking the wonders of God in these different languages. That would be quite noisy if we all spoke at once, wouldn't it? Does anyone here actually know another language other than the one I'm speaking, which is sort of Kemp uh, mangled English, which is the language I speak? Anyone speak another language? Just what, what language do you speak? Mandarin, fantastic. And? I speak Hungarian. You speak Hungarian. <laughs> That's so awesome. There was someone in PMs yesterday who spoke Hungarian. Oh, there we go. Which is lovely, but maybe not as interesting as well. Two Hungarian speakers. But, um, but anyone else speak a different language? Mandarin, Hungarian, Japanese, French. I mean, yeah, yeah, French. I mean, it's just boring. Like it's a boring romantic language. I'm sure if you're a romantic person, you love French, right? Because it's romantic. Anyway, anyway, any other languages? Add to the mix. That's it. Got nothing else? Russian. Russian. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Even the letters look cool in Russian. Like, it's just, <laughs> wow. So we're going to do a little exercise. You ready? Now, they all spoke at the same time, declaring the wonders of God. So we could try that. We could try to see how loud it is 
if we all declare the wonders of God. And if you're going to declare the wonders of God, you're probably not going to go, gee, God's really great in bloody name Jesus, right? You're declaring, like, if we all did it together, do you think we would make much noise right now? We might. We might. That would be cool. So this is what we're going to do. We're all going to say, we're going to declare the wonders of God. And we're going to do it by, by saying what Peter says at the end of chapter 2. When he summarises, and we'll get to it in a little while, when he summarises everything that he says about the wonders of God done in Jesus, he says this, he says, God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. I want you to say that in whatever language you know. You reckon you can do that in Russian? Yeah, maybe. See, if, if you're going, hey, I learned German at school, but I think the only word I could probably remember is the verb for made, that then maybe this is not going to work for you. Maybe you stick to English at that point, right? Has anyone worked it out? God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. You got it in another language you could share with us? We won't know, so we'll just go, oh, that's awesome. No one's got one they want to share? Anna reckons, Anna reckons she can pull it off in Hungarian. Shh. Isn't that awesome? That's cool. Okay, right. Thank you. We're all going to say whatever language you've got. I encourage you to say it and let's declare it loudly and see, see what happens. Ready? One, two, three. God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. See, one of the things that happens is the Spirit, the Spirit comes on you and empowers you to speak, declare the wonders of God, but doesn't guarantee masses of conversions necessarily. <laughs> but you never know. It was a fully weird moment, fully strange. And you'll notice there what Luke records was verse 5. Now they were staying... In Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And so then he has a long list of the different countries that these God-fearing Jews had come from. Because remember, they're in Jerusalem for this festival of Pentecost, right? This Jewish festival. And the countries he lists basically covers sort of the known world of the time from the east across to the west. I'll show you a little map. Just uh, puts it out there for you. Here's a little map. And um, you can see here uh, numbers after these places. That's, that's the, the order they come in the description that Luke gives us. So he talks about those who come from the Parthian Empire and the Medes and Elam. So he does these countries over here in the east. Then he talks about Mesopotamia moving a bit westward. Then he comes all the way through to the ones that are around Jerusalem itself in Judea. Then he talks about those who'd come to Jerusalem from the countries to the north, Cappadocia and Pontus. Then out here further to the west, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. Then the ones down sort of the south, Egypt, then further west, Cyrene. And then he says, even from the very centre of sort of the known world, Rome, the capital of sort of the Roman Empire of the day, even there were Jews in Jerusalem at that time from Rome. But not just the centre of the empire, also from the very peripheral 
parts of the empire, like the islands. Who lives on a little island? I don't know. Do people live on little islands? Yeah, even on the islands. People were there from Crete. Jews from Crete, they were hearing the wonders of God in their own tongue. And not just the islands, also those places that you've heard of but never really met many people come from, but it's just a long, long way away, the very ends of the earth. Yes, even down in Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula. There were Jews from all these places there in Jerusalem and what do they hear? In their own language, they hear what God has done in Jesus. That's what they hear. Now, two big questions come out of this, out of this weird event. Two questions. And they're the two questions that the crowd ask. The crowd ask one question there in verse 12. They say, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? What is this about? That's the first question. And the second question is there right towards the end, verse 37, when they say, brothers, what shall we do? Two questions. What does it mean? What shall we do? So we're just going to organise our thoughts today under those two sort of headings. First of all, what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, because we've jumped in at Acts chapter 2, you are in a better position to understand what this means than those Jews who were there and just experiencing this weird thing. You actually know more than they do because you've got Acts chapter 1 that helps you understand what this means. Because go back to Acts chapter 1, what does Jesus himself, risen from the grave, what does he tell these disciples? He says, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, you, you disciples, 120, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what's happening here? The Holy Spirit does come on them, and they start declaring the wonders of God in Jesus to the people. And where are they doing it? Right there in Jerusalem. And symbolically, by all the different languages they're speaking, you can sort of see that, yes, they are speaking this even to the ends of the earth. Only symbolically at this point, as they say it in all these different languages. So we know what's going on, right? This is the fulfilment of what Jesus said would happen. Jesus says it in Acts 1, it happens within sort of a couple of weeks there in Acts chapter 2. So we know sort of what's going on. But then flick back to Acts chapter 2 and have a look at Peter's explanation. Peter's explanation. Acts chapter 2 verse 14. Peter then stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is... Clearly he doesn't know engineers. I mean, (laughs) that logic does not work. But anyway, I say that as an ex-engineer myself. Um, No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So his explanation, he says, if you want to understand what's going on right here, right now, I need to remind you of what's in the prophet Joel. Now, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews, right? Jews from all these different countries. They know their Old Testament. They know the Torah. When he says Joel, and then he tells them which bit of Joel, which he's going to do in a moment, they're going to go, oh, oh, I know that passage. I know that prophecy. We talk about that as Jews. We know that. And you're saying that has happened now. Okay, I get it. Now, the problem for most of us is most of us probably don't come from a Jewish background. And most of us, even if we're Christians, probably haven't read the Old Testament as much as we could have. 
And we read the Joel prophecy and we're still going, it's not really helping me much. (laughs) So I need to help you a little bit to bring you up to speed to where they were. So I'm going to take about five minutes, five, six minutes now to pump you through a crash course, a university level course in the Hope of Israel 101. Welcome to the course. I have no time to tell you about the examination structure. I have no time to tell you even about the lecture structure because it's going to take five minutes for the whole course. Here we go, right? The Hope of Israel 101. Here we go. What is the first thing that the Israelites were hoping for? Key to what the Israelites were hoping for is this thing we talked about last week, the Kingdom of God. What is the Kingdom of God? The Kingdom of God is when God rules, when God is king in his realm, when he reigns. What's it like when God, the one true living God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, when he reigns? What's it like? He, he, he gets rid of all the bad stuff and he makes things right. He makes things as they ought to be. He establishes justice, in other words. He establishes mercy. He establishes peace. That's what the one true living God, when he takes control, he sets up his kingdom, that's what it will be like. The Israelite nation, as the nation that worshipped that one true God, they were looking for the kingdom of God. Now, if you flick back to Acts chapter 1, we noticed just uh, last week that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. In fact, there's going to be a whole whole set of different concepts that Jesus talks about in Acts chapter 1 that all fit around this idea of the kingdom of God. It forms the hope of Israel. But the centrepiece is the kingdom of God. What else do we learn about the kingdom of God? Well, from Acts chapter 1, we saw there in verse 3 that Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days with many convincing proofs that he was alive and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. As we saw last week, part of this hope for God setting everything right is that he would get rid of death. He would put an end to death. How would he do that? He would raise his holy ones from the grave that they might live forever. That was part of the hope of Israel, resurrection. And the fact that Jesus has already been raised from the grave ahead of everyone else, the very first one out of the grave, that identified him as the king in the kingdom, the first one in the kingdom. So the resurrection of Jesus identified him as the king but it also represented the hope of Israel because that one day God would raise all of his holy ones. That was part of the kingdom of God. But you'll notice some other things that Jesus talks about here in chapter 1. Notice, if I'm, I'm there in chapter 1, verse 4, on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Two ideas there, right? The gift my Father promised. That is, the Holy Spirit is not something that Jesus invented. He's saying you're going to be baptised with the thing that my father promised long ago. So that introduces the whole idea of covenant promises, that God had made promises to his people Israel to establish his kingdom. There was a covenant relationship established. A covenant is just like a formal agreement, this time not between two equals, but between the living God and this particular people, the nation of Israel. He'd established his promises 
that was going to bring in his kingdom. And part of those promises was the promise that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on his people. So you're getting the picture so far. Kingdom of God, Jesus King, tied into resurrection, driven by the covenant promises, poured out into the Spirit. But that's not quite all. Just two more things to add in. You can see the response of some of Jesus' disciples there when Jesus has just talked about this, the covenant promises and the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. So when they met together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, because part of God's promises was when he established his rule, the reign of God, the rule of God, he would fulfil all of his promises to national Israel to his people, the people of Israel, he was, he was going to keep all of his promises. He was going to get rid of their enemies. He was going to make them the preeminent nation, if you like, amongst all the world. That was part of the promises in the Old, Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And so when they hear, right, Jesus, you've raised from the dead and you're going to pour out the Spirit and you're clearly the Christ, the King in the Kingdom, okay, is it, are you going to restore Israel now? Is now the moment? So they get that that's part of the promises. Jesus answered in verse 7, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. So what you see here is that not only is Israel going to be restored, but the nations are going to come into Israel and the word about Jesus is going to go out to those nations. This is the big picture of the hope of Israel. This is what they were looking forward to. This is what they were longing for. This is what they were praying that God would keep this promise to establish his kingdom with all these different aspects to it. And what you see here in Jesus' resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit is all of Israel's hopes starting to come to life. That's what's going on. Now, if you were one of the Jews who were there in Jerusalem and Peter's chatting to you and talking to you, well, he actually wasn't chatting, he said a loud voice, yelling at you so you can hear, right? You knew all this stuff. You'd, you'd known this ever since you became a Jew. You've been, you've been taught this. You've been schooled in the, in the Torah, in the Old Testament. You knew all this stuff. That was, all, that was live. That was your hope. So you can see now, if you turn to chapter 2, what Peter says. Chapter 2, verse 16, he says... No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he goes through this passage from Joel chapter 2. He says, you want to understand what's going on here at Pentecost? Joel 2 is the answer. It tells you what's going on. And then he explains it to them from verse 22. He identifies what has been fulfilled there. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you 
by miracles, wonders and signs. Now that wonders and signs is worth underlining because what had Joel 2 just specified in verse 19? I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Peter's saying, Joel 2 speaks of wonders and signs. You want to know where the wonders and signs were? They were in Jesus' ministry. When he went around healing the sick, when he went around casting out demons, when he went around turning water into wine or walking on water or feeding 5,000 with a few bread and some fish. He said those were the wonders and signs that Joel was speaking about. Those were the wonders and signs. Keep going, verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now why is Peter making this point? Why is he suddenly talking about Jesus' death? Well, not only was it a, I mean, a terrible reality that Jesus had been crucified by them, I think the reason that Peter is mentioning it here is because in the Joel 2 passage, there's a couple of references to blood. Blood there in verse 19 and again in verse 20. And I wonder if, prompted by the Joel 2 passage, which talks about signs and wonders and talks about blood, he's saying, yes, Jesus did the signs and wonders, and yes, you made him shed his blood, you killed the guy even with God's knowledge. So you killed him. Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Okay, why was it impossible for death to keep hold of Jesus? Was he slippery? (laughs) How come death couldn't keep its hold on Jesus? Because he goes on to say, because Jesus was the promised Christ. He was the one prophesied in the Old Testament and he quotes from uh, Psalm 16. He was the one that Christ was always going to be rescued from the grave. And that's why it was impossible for death to hold on to Jesus because Jesus was the Christ and so he was rescued from the grave. Jump down then to verse 31. Seeing what was ahead, David spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Which is exactly what Jesus had told them back in chapter 1, that they would be, right? They were to witness to him to the very ends of the earth, but starting in Jerusalem. And so then you can come to Peter's conclusion, there in verse 33. Oh, wrong one. Peter's conclusion, given all that we've just read through. He says, Exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. That's his explanation of the events. You want to understand what's going on? Jesus, who was the Christ, has been raised and has now poured out the promised Holy Spirit as part of the fulfilment of the kingdom of God promises. That is what is going on today, is he saying. But notice his conclusion. The very last thing he says, it's not actually about the Holy Spirit. I mean, people get very excited, understandably, about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and here in chapter 2 in particular. But the, the climax of Peter's sermon is not about the Spirit. It's his final sentence where he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Actually, the pouring out of the Spirit is evidence that Jesus really is the Christ. 
just as his resurrection is evidence that he really is the Christ. The fact that the Spirit's now been poured out shows that Jesus really is the Lord and Christ. That is who this guy is. And that's the key point that he's trying to make. Okay, so that's our what does it mean? It means Jesus is Lord and Christ and he's poured out the Spirit so they can be his witnesses. What's the crowd's second question? There in verse 37. Once they understand all this, they say, well, what should we do? Notice verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Uh, Why were they cut to the heart? Well, think about it for a moment. Okay, you've just convinced me, Peter, that Jesus really is the Christ, the one who stands as king in God's kingdom, the one who now is exalted to the Father's right hand, the one who's now pouring out the Spirit in fulfilment of all those covenant promises. He really is the Christ Messiah. And we killed him. Okay, that doesn't sound good. That sounds really, really bad. So yeah, they're cut to the heart. I reckon some of them were probably scared stiff. My goodness, what can we possibly do now? We killed him. Now, if you don't know the one true living God, if you really don't know the Christian God and what he's like, you might expect, yeah, actually, you know what? This is going to be bad for you. I reckon that's a step too far. But if you do know the one true living God, you will not be surprised by what happens next. Let's have a look there. Peter replied, repent and repent just means turn around, right? Turn away from what you were doing before. Take a completely different direction. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the name of the very guy you killed but who, Jesus, but who God raised, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you killed him, but if you turn to him, What does it say there at the end of Joel quote there, verse 21? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who's the Lord? The Lord Jesus. Jesus has been made Lord. Everyone who calls on his name, even those who killed him, can be saved. You will receive forgiveness for your sins. That's the mercy and compassion and love that is at the very heart of the one true living God. Do you know that God? Do you know that love and compassion and mercy that he has for even his enemies? You notice what uh, Peter says. He basically says three things. He tells them to take some action, repent and be baptised, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. He gives them an incentive and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your kids and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. There's an incentive. You too will receive the Spirit. But there's also a warning, verse 40. With many other words, so in other words, this little, little sermon here is the executive summary, right? This is the abstract. He probably went on for a while. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What does he mean by that? Well, actually, when you kill God's Messiah, that does put you in a bad place. You reject God and reject his Messiah, Jesus, that does not bode well for you. That puts you on the wrong side of Jesus because 
Jesus being made Lord and Christ means Jesus is the judge, that he is the saviour as well, but he is judge and saviour. So if you put yourself on the wrong side of Jesus, you put yourself on the wrong side of God the Father and you put yourself on the wrong side of Jesus the judge. So yeah, it does go badly for you. So you can see why Peter is desperate to plead with them and warn them, repent, come back to Jesus. You can receive forgiveness for all of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just like us. That's the incentive and the warning. Now, how does any of that apply to us? I mean, none of us were there. None of us were there when Pontius Pilate said, do you want me to release Jesus for you? And we all said, no, no, Caesar's our king, get rid of it. None of us are responsible for his blood. None of us were there. But you know, every single time that we hear what God has to say through his word and we go, nah, not this time. Every time you thumb your nose at God's word, you thumb your nose at God. This is his word. You can't take him but reject this. Every time you thumb your nose at God's word, you are thumbing your nose at the one true living God. And you know what? That, that will not go well for you. So even though, yes, our sins may be different, at heart they're still the same. Rejecting God, rejecting Jesus who he sent, rejecting his word. And the only hope for any of us, the only way you can, quote, save yourself is actually by entrusting yourself fully to Jesus because in him alone is there forgiveness for all of our sins. You notice there on that particular day, after this much longer sermon, We read in verse 41, those who accepted Peter's message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Pretty good going. 120 in the morning, 3,120 by the evening. God did an amazing work, right? Through that Holy Spirit coming on people that they might understand. It was an amazing moment that day. Now, I don't know where you stand with Jesus, but you know, today could be your day actually. If you've never entrusted yourself to Jesus, today could be that day. If you know that you're on the wrong side of him, if you know you've been thumbing your nose at God through his word, not really getting on board with Jesus, why not make that change today? The promise, the incentive, the warning, stay the same. Maybe if you want to make that change, you could write it down on your Connect card. Just say, actually, I'd like to find out more about this Jesus. I'd actually like to become a Christian. I'd like to, I want to get it right. Write it down. Write your questions down. I'd love to help you try to make that commitment and find out answers to your questions. Okay, we need to wrap up, but I'm going to take three minutes to do this. I'm going to try to answer two really common, frequently asked questions about this passage. Right? Here we go. Here's the first one. I'm going to whiz you through this. Is speaking in tongues meant to be a universal experience for everyone who becomes a Christian? You see here, here's the people, the Spirit comes on and they speak in tongues. And sometimes you'll hear people say, clearly, everyone who becomes a Christian and receives the Spirit should speak in tongues. Look what happens here. I want to suggest to you, humbly, from the Scriptures, that the answer is actually a respectful no. Not every Christian will speak in tongues. 
Though it is very clear in the book of Acts that every Christian does receive the Spirit. That's made very clear in the book of Acts and I can talk to you about why I think that's very clear. But not everyone does speak in tongues. Here's some thoughts for you. The 120 who received the Spirit at this particular point, they were already followers of Jesus, interestingly. So it's not quite their conversion moment, is it? It might be something else is going on there. Secondly, tongues is a mark of the Spirit that seems to be especially present in Acts at key moments in the spread of the Gospel. I'll give you a bit of thought of experiment. If I said, look, Christy's become a Christian and received the Spirit, and you're not used to people becoming Christians and receiving the Spirit, especially if they're not a Jew... You're not a Jew. You're not a Jew. Right. You might go, well, how do I really know? Speaking in tongues was a very easy way at that particular time where that was a very live question where you could know someone received the Spirit. So you see in the book of Acts at key moments as the Gospel goes out in Jerusalem, as it goes out to the Samaritans, as it goes out to the Gentiles, that particular, the first people converted in each of those groups speak in tongues as a way of making it clear that they too have actually received the Spirit. Finally, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says very clearly that not every believer actually has the gift of tongues or prophecy. One more um, thing that I'd like to point out to you, my question, as a Christian, what is my experience of the Spirit meant to be like? If I'm not necessarily going to speak in tongues, what's it meant to be like? Here's a little bit of a thought from the book of Acts and the way the Spirit is talked about. First of all, all Christians have the Spirit. Very clear in the book of Acts. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Spirit, no question about it. The Spirit helps you put faith in Jesus, repent from your sins, fills you with gifts for service, it um, produces fruit in your life so that you might be more like Jesus. All Christians have the Spirit. But some Christians, only some in the book of Acts, are full of the Spirit. Okay, that's a bit weird. Who are they? Well, in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, when they have to choose deacons, they're told, choose people who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Or Stephen, in chapter 6, verse 5, is described as someone who's full of the Spirit. Barnabas, in chapter 11, someone who's full of the Spirit. What does that mean? seems to be that full of the Spirit is a synonym in Acts for a mature believer. seems to be you say, yeah, look, I can see lots of fruit of the Spirit in your life. You're a person who's full of the Spirit. So all Christians have it. Some are particularly full of it. The Spirit, that is. And thirdly, even though they have the Spirit... Christians can be repeatedly filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts. So you have the Spirit, you might be full of it, but you can be filled with it repeatedly. And in particular, it seems that like Pentecost, being filled with the Spirit is a momentary thing that empowers you to proclaim Jesus with boldness and courage. And you can chase up some of those references later on. You can see that that's what the Spirit does in their life. It empowers them to proclaim Jesus boldly. However, it's worth noting that that does not mean they are themselves passive. So I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian person, I want you to pray that you might become a person who's full of the Spirit, showing the fullness of the Spirit in your life. But I also want you to pray that you will be filled with the Spirit. When those opportunities come to proclaim Jesus to your friends, to your lab partner, to the people in your tutor group, to your family, pray to be filled with the Spirit Remembering that being filled with the Spirit just gives you the boldness, the words and the courage to actually say something. It doesn't mean just sitting back and being passive, but then in the power that the Spirit provides, proclaim Jesus.